Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hello, I'm Gail. Hello, I'm Catherine. We are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and we're delighted to welcome you to today's episode. Each week, we showcase vital women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who continue to shatter the myths that we become invisible as we age. We may be aging, but we are not done. The 30-minute conversation with our guest will focus on several themes that we've agreed upon in advance. And today, we're delighted to welcome Heather Booth, aged 74, renowned organizer and activist in progressive social movements for over 50 years. Heather has lived in Washington, D.C. for the past three decades. However, Chicago claims her as its own, given that Heather lived in Chicago during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, where she founded the Jane Underground and founded the Midwest Academy, a national training institute for community organizers, and she's currently chair of the board. The Huffington Post has said of Heather, she is one of the nation's most influential organizers for progressive causes. Inside almost every liberal drive over the past five decades for fair pay, equal justice, abortion rights, workers' rights, voter rights, civil rights, immigration rights, child care, you will find Heather Booth. We will talk with Heather about her illustrative career as a social activist, her current projects, and what she refers to as her period of exploration. We also will hear how she sustains energy for changing the world. Welcome, Heather. We're delighted to have you here on Women Over 70. And I am so glad to be with you. Uh, Partly, you both are such dynamic women leaders, uh, Gail from a business background and Catherine in education and a coach to so many. And to this audience, uh, to know that women in our 70s and older um, can still be in our uh, active, I was going to say in our prime of life, but certainly in our active uh, vital life, uh, continuing the vision and values that we've had uh, and finding new ways uh, to make a difference in the world. Yes, indeed. And that's what really what we want to explore with you today. And, you know, you've been a, a social activist for much of your life. And I'm wondering, just give us a snapshot of how you even got involved in progressive movements. When did that start for you? <laughs> um, well, in some ways, it's hard to know when, when you start in progressive activities. In some ways, it really goes back to my having been in a family that was a truly loving family and believed um, in, in the golden rule, we should treat others as we want to be treated. But I became active probably as a young teenager in the late 1950s. Um, And by 1960, I was active in the civil rights movement, joining the protests against Woolworths, uh, which people of our age (laughs) may remember, uh, where African-Americans weren't allowed to sit at their lunch counters in the South. And so there were demonstrations around the country. And from there, I moved into SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which was the youth uh, frontline on the ground organizers uh, in the civil rights movement, and moved 
then to the women's movement and the movement against the war in Vietnam and labor organizing. And one activity led to another, and I felt all of it together was being part of a movement for justice and democracy and peace in this world. And I still feel I'm part of it. Mm-hmm. So what, when you were in Chicago, this was, I think, starting in, in this 1960s. Tell, can you tell our listeners about the Jane Underground and then also about the Midwest Academy? Because those are two major, major contributions. Sure. I came to Chicago. I grew up in uh, New York and came to Chicago in 1963 to go to college at the University of Chicago and um, learned many lessons from the civil rights movement. Um, I had worked in Mississippi in the Freedom Summer Project in 1964. Uh, Many of your listeners may remember when Northern students were invited down to support the courageous struggle of African-Americans in that state. Yes. And when I was just protesting for voting rights um, and encouraging people to register to vote, I was picked up and arrested. And one of the lessons I learned is sometimes you have to stand up to illegitimate authority. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even breaking the law, though in Mississippi, I, I wasn't breaking a law. They just were enforcing laws in that way. I also learned that if you organize, you can change the world. And within a year of the summer project, there was a Voting Rights Act Mm -hmm. because people came together and organized. And with those lessons in mind, I became also very active in an emerging women's movement. On campus, a friend of mine had been raped at knife point in her bed in off-campus housing. We went with her to student health to get her a gynecological exam, and student health said they didn't cover gynecological exams. She was given a lecture on her promiscuity. Oh, dear. But we sat with her, and over time, with protest and organizing, of course now, women students are given supportive counseling if there's a rape, and... Uh, and are covered, of course, by gynecological coverage. I say, of course, but it's only, of course, because people organized. Mm -hmm. So with that commitment and and lesson and dedication, another friend contacted me and said his sister was pregnant and nearly suicidal, not ready to have a child, and she wanted an abortion. I hadn't really thought about the issue before. It was a more innocent time, and in some ways, I may have been a more innocent person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had never really had to face the issue myself. But I said I'd try to help as a friend in need of help. Um, And I contacted the Medical Committee for Human Rights, MCHR, the medical arm of the civil rights movement. Mm and found a doctor who had provided an abortion, Dr. T.R.M. Howard, an extraordinary person. His story should also be told. He was a dynamic civil rights leader in Mississippi who came to Chicago when his name appeared on a Klan death list. I only learned later that he started a clinic for women on 63rd Street, Friendship Clinic. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I called him up on the phone. We never met. And he said he would perform the abortion. 
and I passed on the name, and I thought that would be the extent of my involvement. But perhaps from the woman who was involved, word spread. And a little while later, someone else called. I made the connection again. The procedure was successful. And then someone else called. Mm. At that point, I realized we needed to set up a system. I was living in a dormitory, and I called it Jane. <laughs> and so if people were looking for an abortion, they could ask for Jane. I moved quickly into off-campus housing. Um, Mm -hmm. and continued providing that counseling. At some point, I started also negotiating with Dr. Howard. The price had been $500. Mm -hmm. So many women were coming through. Could he do it for less? Could he do it for two for the price of one? <laughs> could we have, I was a student, so I said, could we have a scholarship fund? Mm -hmm. um, some people came through and had no money at all. Could they do it for three for the price of one, for $50 for less? And I also learned about what was involved. Dr. Howard described the procedure and what you should do in advance, what you should do afterward. Does it hurt? What are the consequences? Uh, questions I should ask the women in advance. And so I set up a counseling service to support the women who were coming through both before they had the procedure and afterwards. And that went on that way from 65 till about 68 or 69. Um, I had gotten married in 1967. Um, my husband was the leader of the student movement. He was the head of the Students for a Democratic Society. And we met at a sit-in against the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. We really were a movement couple. <laughs> for our lives. And in 1968, I was pregnant with our first child. I was very excited about that, but I was working full time. I had a, was trying to get a graduate degree uh, and I had a very active movement life. And now with a child, I thought this is just more than I can manage. Plus, many, many women were coming through at that point. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't manage the counseling all on my own. So I reached out to other women. I'd go to a meeting and at the end of the meeting would say, anyone who wants to deal with abortion, come see me. And when I had about 12 or so women who said that they wanted to pursue that, we had several briefings, role plays of how you do the counseling. And I turned over all the information and the materials that I had to this group of women. But there was one other change that had happened. Um, at one point, I lost track of Dr. Howard. I, it may have been a police bust at the clinic or for whatever reason, I, he wasn't responding. And I found another provider whose name was Mike. So Mike and the women of Jane continued that counseling for a while until there were so many people coming through that the women of Jane couldn't hmm. just do the counseling. Mike needed help in doing the procedures. And the women were watching how to do it. They were helping out. 
And then it turned out that Mike told them he actually wasn't a doctor. Oh, oh my goodness. And many people gasp at that. In fact, the procedures provided by Jane were probably more, um, were safer than they even are in a medical facility because uh, with licensed physicians, because this was the only thing that was being done by Jane. Mm -hmm. The people knew how to do it. It was women-centered. We were doing it not for a profit motive, but because we cared about the women with a women's culture. Mm -hmm. And it was done to ensure the women had a good outcome and had a good future life. But the result of that information altogether led the women of Jane to say, okay, they can just do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the women of Jane, and perhaps by the time that Roe became the law in 1973, January 22nd, Mm -hmm. by the time Roe became the law of the land, Perhaps there were a hundred or more women who had been part of the service, who had organized part of the service. And the women of Jane had performed 11,000 abortions. Oh my goodness. Oh, Heather. That is a remarkable story. By 1973. Thank you so much for telling us about that. I, I think that Many of our listeners, especially maybe younger listeners, uh, might not have this this background and the appreciation for the women of Jane and and Roe versus Wade and and how fragile some of that still is. So I'm wondering also if you, I know you founded the Midwest Academy for organizing in a city that was very much. Uh, influenced by the Saul Alinsky method. And with, I'm wondering what led you to, to this creating the Academy? Well, the Midwest Academy, which still exists, its uh, website is uh, www.midwestacademy.com. Um, and it provides excellent training for people who want to learn as leaders or organizers Uh, to make this a more just, democratic, sustainable world. Um, It teaches skills. How do you hold a meeting? How do you do public speaking? How do you recruit people? How do you uh, help them tell their story? It teaches the context of our organizing. What are the politics and the, uh, what's the economic situation? What's the dynamic? What's a view of the world to understand Uh, sometimes the crazy things that happen. Um, And then it also teaches strategic planning. How you can figure out what to do when you don't know what to do. And so that it's not just going action to action, protest to protest, as important as that may be. But there's actually an escalating arc to the work where Organizing builds organization and power for people over time. So that's the academy, and it's still um, going strong. The current directors are 
Jay Travis, uh, for those in the Chicago area, uh, they may know her. She was the former head of uh, COCO, the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, and uh, Eric Zachary, their co-directors. And uh, they're really a dynamic duo with many other folks who are trainers. Um, the way the Academy found it was founded, there again, many, many different strands to the uh, founding, kind of an overdetermined uh, beginning, perhaps. One way to think about it was that in my personal life, I had won a back pay suit for union organizing. I was at a, um, I mentioned I was in grad school and um, I had a job where I actually was treated quite well, but the clerical staff was treated miserably and really oppressively. And when I said, well, why don't we just ask for a, a system by which people are informed about how they'll be treated on the job? Is there um, just to have a process of, um, review what's the sick pay policy, what's the sick leave policy, what's the, um, how long are lunch breaks, uh, just some routine issues. Um, the employer uh, said I would be fired and fired me. And then uh, everyone who had come in together to raise these issues, three months later, everyone was laid off and our cases were unified, and the National Labor Relations Board, which at that point still had some record of supporting working people, it's now been so uh, undermined in this uh, Trumpian era and even before it, um, where working families really are not respected and not supported. But at that point, I won a back pay suit. And with that money and swearing I'd never be fired again, and I never have been, <laughs> I decided to start my own training center, yeah. in part also because it was a changing time. In 1973, some of the movements of the 60s were fracturing after about 1968. Civil rights, anti-war, parts of the student movement, peace movement, and some new movements were developing. Um, public interest organizing, um, women's movement, uh, and, and others. So it was a, but it was a changing time. And I thought we needed to learn and pass on what we knew of specific approaches, making strategy of specific skills in this changing time. And so I decided to have this training center that combined both the best of the community organizing approach, the kind of thing uh, the Alinsky folks had done very effectively, with a movement spirit and movement background. So it was the combination of both approaches. And more than that, that it would be also a place where people from different backgrounds could come together. Those working on community and consumer issues, trade unionists from the women's movement, from uh, civil rights movement, uh, and from other areas could all come together and learn about each other. We were getting to a period where people were pretty siloed. Mm -hmm. And so that was the origin of the academy. And then in the early years, 
we help to be a strategic planning ground for much of the organizing um, that was innovative in that period. We helped to develop the model of statewide multi-issue organizations at a time when there had been just community groups or national public interest groups. We made this link between them where people were siloed into one kind of group. You were in a seniors group or a environmentalist group, but what if you were a senior environmentalist? Um, so we made these multi-issue organizations. We helped to create and spur ahead the working women's movement. Um, women employed is one example of that, and nine to five and the working women's organizations around the country. Mm -hmm. um, and then by 1980, we helped the organizations figure out how they could become electorally involved. For the academy, we do it on a nonpartisan basis to ensure that there's civic engagement, uh, voter registration, and encouraging people to be involved in community and vote. Um, and then set up a parallel organization uh, to also encourage um, involvement and engagement in elections. And I, I want to encourage everyone listening, we need to do everything we can for this coming election. Heather, when you and I had a brief conversation a short time ago, you, you said that you were, you're in a period of exploration. And I want, could you talk about that? Because you, you just mentioned that, um, you know, it was a changing time back in the 70s and the 80s. And I think there's a changing time now. And, and what is your period of exploration? It's a very important point you're making. Um, first of all, I just underscore that this election is momentous. Maybe other elections have been dramatic, but it's almost like the election is a fight between civilization and barbarism. Mm -hmm. We proceed with an era of unleashed hate and venom, uh, division and conflict, uh, putting down and attacking those who are uh, either immigrants or people of color or, uh, or women or, uh, or people who believe in science? Mm -hmm. Or is it a time of just incredible hope reflecting the inspiration we also see in this period where from Black Lives Matter and the Women's March and, the dreamers, where there's so much energy and so much is going on that is so hopeful. And it's really a, a vote between two alternate visions mm -hmm. of what the future can hold. Mm -hmm. And after the election, we will be in a different period, whatever the outcome. We are now in a period of resistance. On the one hand, it means everyone is more, or so many are united. The majority of the country is united, resisting and opposing this, this march against, opposing the destruction of democracy, opposing uh, this rise of hate and uh, hostility. And so we can be unified in this opposition, but after the election, if the forces of small d democracy win, <laughs> and if a Democrat wins, whoever it is, 
we won't just be in a period of resistance. We'll have to actually uh, move forward in some areas. Sometimes when you have a victory, people stop organizing, stop acting. They think, oh, we've won everything. What do we need to do? But that's when we do need to keep acting. Or there may be some who feel, well, our hopes and our dreams are not fully met because we don't have, we haven't built the public power yet to win the vision that we may have of healthcare for all or of environment that really is sustainable and, mm -hmm. and one in which all can thrive. Um, changes in the criminal justice system, changes in education in just each area. And so what will happen when we face that new period and we need to rise to that challenge? And then in the worst scenario, that either the election is stolen or Trump doesn't leave office or, or actually wins the election with all the manipulation and rigged electioneering that's going on. What happens then? What happens to a dream deferred? So Heather, if I might ask you, you, yeah. you're in your 70s now, and I'm wondering if there's also a personal exploration going on. I guess there always is. In some ways, I feel so grateful for my own life. Um, I have five grandchildren, two wonderful sons, um, wonderful family, and friends and work that's meaningful. So I feel actually quite uh, gifted in this life. Mm -hmm. On a personal level, my husband of over 50 years, who really was my movement partner, my husband, Paul Booth, who had been the assistant to the president of AFSME, a public employee union, a dynamic union in Illinois also, uh, Paul died two years ago, and it's really rocked my world. I'm trying to figure out how to move on in this world without my partner. And as independent as I've been, it's still an adjustment and also part of that exploration. And so particularly now, community, and meaningful work, friends and family are especially important. Yes, thank you for sharing that with us because it certainly resonates with a lot of our listeners who have experienced similar losses. And life does change when that happens. And yet you have such a, a verb for life. You're so dynamic that I know you must be thinking there are ways that you can continue to move and change the world. And, and um, do you have, can you share how you can get through this to be able to do that? Is that your desire? Well, I'm often asked, how do you, how do you stay as a long distance runner? Which is what <laughs> I try to be. That yes, there are many sprints and there are many short-term intense areas, intense times, but I've been in this movement for change 
my whole life since I was, as I said, a young teenager and now 74. And as long as my health holds out, I hope to continue with others and also pass it on to others, the next generation. I think there are three things that I find helps me to keep going. One is I really do believe you should do what gives you joy in life. I find joy in this work. I find joy following my vision and values and every day waking up and even if it's frustrating, even if it's hard, even if I say, oh, I wish this weren't quite this way. But I love this work. I love the people I work with. Mm-hmm. So to find joy in what you do, if you can afford to, if you can find the opportunities to. It may not be your full-time job, but it may be what you do as the marches are called, as the calls are requested, as you put out the tweets, as you join with others, as you find the, uh, the groups like um, Chicago Women Take Action, uh, one group that's uh, dynamic or... Um, or in your community group or other social engagements. A second thing is I think that we need to build a community around us and have friends, family, and others that we count on and we cultivate those relationships um, even when we don't so-called need them because we'll all need them and we need each other. And to do those things that give you joy, whether it's, I'm in two book clubs. I have friends where I go to different theater series with them um, to ensure that that's part of my life too. And then I think in this work, we also need a strategic plan so that it's not just action to action, but that we see how one action builds to another even if we haven't won in the short run, even when we face a period that's so difficult like this is right now. But we can see our way forward. If we organize, we can change this world. (laughs) Thank you, Heather. That's a beautiful note uh, to close on. I, I want to mention that in 2016, Uh, Lily Rivlin uh, did a film on you, Heather Booth, Changing the World, which I was fortunate enough to to see. And um, I just would recommend it to as many people as possible. It's just inspiring and and riveting. By the way, on that, there's a website. People can go if they want it. Um, It's www.heatherbooththefilm, and you can download it. it's either a trailer that's free or I think for mm-hmm. two ninety nine you can download and see the whole film. And it's been shown on PBS and World Channel. It's been shown in Chicago many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do hope it helps to inspire another generation to say, you also can change the world. But to do that, we need to join with others. We need to organize. thank you thank you so much Heather thank you we really appreciate your being on Women Over 70 
And listeners, we want to hear from you. Please share your thoughts on Facebook at Women Over 70. Ask questions, add to the conversation, tell us what topics you'd like to hear more about and become an active participant in our community. Our goal is to create a conversation across the generations. You can access our weekly Wednesday podcasts at womenover70.com. And if you know a vital woman over 70 who would be a great guest, please recommend her to us on our website. Our thanks to the School of Continuing and Professional Studies at DePaul University for use of their recording space. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.